And all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. Uh, Daniel chapter number eight. Daniel chapter number eight. It is going to be a really, really good lesson. It's going to change just a little bit uh, the emphasis uh, from this point on to the rest of the the rest of the book. And I'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, I wanted to give a reminder. Uh, they, they told me, it, and we wanted to make sure, remember, remember guys, when uh, the, the kids are being dismissed, give them time to get out of here and let them straighten up the chairs. And all God's people say it. All right. We don't want to trample the children. All right. Yes. All right. Well, so, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. Verse one, verse one. Daniel chapter eight, verse one. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Now, if you're here for the very first time, we're going through the book of Daniel. Uh, Probably the greatest prophetic book, some will say in the Bible, because it gives such detail of the times and and what happens when the Christ will arise and when he uh, comes to this earth and he is born. All through that, uh, even some would even pick it greater than Revelation. But either way, it's the Old Testament it's the Old Testament prophetic book like the New Testament revelation. And so that's what we've been covering the last few weeks. And, and man, it's been good. And uh, we're going to see something great tonight. All right. Verse number one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. In other words, he's saying this is the second one. And I saw in a vision and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace where, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision and I was by the river of Uliam. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold, there stood there uh, before the river, a ram, which had how many horns? Two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. Kind of sounds like that bear, right? And the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And I was considering behold, and he goat came from the West on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river. And he ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram and he was moved with collar against him and smote the ram and break his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped him upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he goat waxed very great. When he was strong, the great horn was broken, for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. The pleasant land would be Israel, all right? And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and the stars to the ground, that means God's people, the Jewish people, and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down, or it was defiled. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Let's just stop there. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but I know y'all want to sit down, so let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you so much for a good crowd tonight as we study your word and the prophecy that you're laying out before us. Lord, I pray right now that you will just bless everybody here. I pray that they'll get a good night's rest tonight and double blessing for showing up tonight and, and to coming to learn. I pray that you'll bless all those that are watching by way uh, 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 online that, that maybe they were shut in and couldn't make it. Lord, I pray that you'll touch and bless them. And Lord, those that couldn't make it and didn't convict them. Lord, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you don't let me say anything I shouldn't and don't let me forget anything I should. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say it. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. As we, as we go on through the chapter, you'll find out that the rest of the chapter is basically the explanation that uh, the angel gives to Daniel about what he just saw. And so we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the beginning and start at the top and just work our way down and come through this and, and understand some things that are very significant. And we're going to cover that in the intro. All right. There's some things you need to understand and see in the introduction uh, to help understand the rest of this particular chapter, but not just the rest of this particular chapter, but the rest of the book. All right. The rest of the book. So number one or intro, let's look at the intro. Number one, look at the time. Verse number one, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. In other words, this is his second vision, his second dream that he's had. The first one we covered last week in chapter number seven. King Belshazzar's third year was 551. So this vision came to BC, by the way, uh, came to Daniel before the fateful banquet. In other words, before he saw the, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel got this vision. Okay. This explains why the Babylonian empire is not mentioned in this chapter for within a dozen years, Babylon would be taken by Cyrus who would usher in the rule of the Medes and Persians. And I'm going to explain more about why Babylon's not mentioned in just a second. Okay. So we find that this was a time before the banquet, a time about almost 12 years before uh, Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians. Okay. Secondly, we see the place. Where is it? Where, where, where does this vision take place? I believe, I believe that Daniel is physically in Babylon, but the Holy spirit takes him in spirit to Shushan. This was a city about 200 miles Southeast of Babylon. And at that time, at that time, it wasn't too important to the Babylonians. It wasn't that big a deal. But eventually, it became the capital of the Persian Empire. So God took Daniel to the capital of the Persian Empire, which would be coming very soon, uh, the capital of what's coming. All right. Now, he is in the Babylonian Empire. But what we are seeing today in chapter number eight is coming in the. Come on, everybody in the in the future. Okay. So number three, this is really good. You got to perk up right here. Pay attention right here. This is big. From chapter eight to the end of the book of Daniel, the text is written in Hebrew, Hebrew for the major emphasis of these chapters is God's plan for the nation of in the end times. All right. Now what we've been covering and what we've been studying, all right, from chapter uh, two Verse four through chapter seven through 28, which we've already covered, 
This is written in Aramaic. Now, why? Because the emphasis in those chapters is on the Gentile kingdoms in history and prophecy. Now, let me, let me say something about that and we'll continue. If you'll remember, if you'll remember when we seen the very, very first uh, dream, the very first image, how many of y'all remember the image, the gold head, silver, brat, all right. Now he said, this image represents the times of the, oh my stars. I'm giving y'all tests right after the service. The times of the Gentiles. Y'all remember now. All right, let's, 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 let's review. It's the times of the Gentiles. We remember. Now, remember, God primarily worked through and with the nation of Israel. All right? He chose the nation of Israel. He blessed the nation of Israel. He called the nation of Israel and commissioned them to reach the rest of the world. But the nation of Israel rebelled and they refused to obey God. So God punished them. God brought judgment upon them. And instead of the nation of Israel having a big part and a big say in the history of humanity, he said, now it's going to be the times of the... Okay, now we're cooking. All right. Now we're cooking. And so from chapter two to the end of chapter seven, we've been covering the times of the... But now it's changing. That's why it was in Aramaic. Okay, now he's changing to Hebrew. Because what we're going to be covering, what we're going to be seeing is God's prophecy and plan laid out for the Jewish people. This is, this is where a lot of people get stuff mixed up. When God has something for the Jewish people and then God has something for the entire world. And a lot of times those things get cloudy. And so people in, in the Gentile realm will start claiming stuff that's only for the Jewish people. Now, we're going to see how God has plans for his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And when we see this, we're talking about the nation. Okay? Not the individual Jews specifically, but the nation of Israel, how God's plans are for the nation as a whole. If that makes sense, say amen. Okay, very important. Very important. It's written in Hebrew because God, the emphasis now is switching from dealing primarily with what God had planned for the Gentile kingdoms. And now he's directly addressing and talking about the nation of Israel. You see, it was the nation of Israel that God chose to be the vehicle of his revelations and redemption in the world. You say, how do we know who God is? We got it from the Jewish people. We got our scriptures from the Jewish people. We got our savior from the Jewish people. Our salvation is from the Jewish people. Listen, most of all, listen, John 4, 22 says salvation is of the, in this chapter, five people come across the stage of prophecy and history, which we're going to, I'm going to give you some more of that. Uh, but first of all, number one, we're going to look at the experience. What took place? What took place? Let's, let's, let's just do a bird's eye view of the whole deal. Uh, let's look at Daniel's experience here. And we, we find that primarily in verses one through 14. First of all, if you're writing notes down, write this down. Number one, we see the vision. We see the vision, write that down. All right. First of all, first of all, we've got a ram. 
We've got a ram, right? Verse number three. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and stood, behold, there stood uh, before the river a ram, which had two horns. This ram is being described. And the two horns were high and one, one was higher than the other. And, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. In other words, he was conquering. He was pushing. But then we find the he goat comes up. Verse number five. A he goat comes up and that dude's flying. I mean, he's going so fast. His feet ain't even touching the ground. Are y'all with me? Representing speed. All right. He goes against and hits the, the ram. He's angry and he comes against it with great animosity. And we'll tell you why in just a minute. All right. The horns are broken. The ram, or excuse me, the goat has one magnificent horn. If you, it's almost like you would see a unicorn. It's just one main horn. And who that is? Well, then that horn is broken. And then we find four little horns come up or notable ones come up in that one horn. But then out of the one of the four, we have a little horn. Now we've had a little horn before, haven't we? All right. Now, so we see a vision. We see a vision. Daniel, Daniel is, is perplexed by this. He's looking at all this and he's wondering about it. So then we see B, we see some voices. Look at the voices. And don't worry, we're going to come back and talk about them. We see the vision and we see the voices, angels. The Bible says, then I heard one saint and the word saint there translated is translated angel, messenger or angel. Okay. So this week he hears one angel talking to another. All right. After the vision is given about the last little horn and what he does and his behavior, one angel is talking to another angel and saying, well, how long is that going to take place? How long is it going to be from the, the desolation to the cleansing of the temple? And, that, and, he, and he gives a timetable here, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about further. All right. So we have angels talking. Then, then we see a visitor. Write that down. We see the visitor. <clears throat> Verse 15. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. So he's praying. He's asking God, show me what this means. I, I want to know what this means. Help me with this. Help me understand this. Behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a, a man. So, so now we know what he looks like. All right. This guy shows up. He looks like a man. He looks like a human. All right. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, and said, now we know Gabriel is a what? He's an angel. He's one of the named angels in the Bible. There's only three named angels in the Bible. Okay. You have Lucifer, which ended up being the devil, Satan, Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. All right. If you want to write this down, this doesn't have nothing to do with this, but it's good information. Lucifer was the majestic angel. He was the angel of majesty and worship. Majesty and word. He was glorious. He was the most beautiful angel God ever created. That's why he was lifted up in pride. Then you have Gabriel or Michael. Let's do Michael. Michael is the, the, the angel of might, strength, might, and warfare. Warfare. He's the fighting angel. He's the one that does the fighting. And then you have, then you have Gabriel. 
He's the messenger angel. He's got a word for you. We see he brings a message from God to Daniel. Then we get to the New Testament. We've seen that Gabriel is sent to Zacharias. He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Amen. He's the messenger angel. And that's why, you know, you hear people say, you know, Gabriel's going to blow his trumpet. Now, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't specifically say, it just says there's going to be a trumpet. You know, the, uh, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, you know. But, it, but they use Gabriel because he's a messenger angel. He's coming to say, hey, y'all come home, amen. But, but either way, either way, Gabriel comes. So we know this is, this is the archangel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. But he comes in the form of a, a man. You know, in the New Testament, the Bible says that, that we have entertained angels unawares. In other words, that we, we, met, we, we may have met a real, sure enough, legit angel at a gas station somewhere. Or at a restaurant somewhere. Or somewhere, and we had no idea. We had no idea. Well, Daniel is speaking to Gabriel. Gabriel has been sent. Gabriel has been sent to help him understand the vision that he has. It says in verse 17, so he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said unto me, understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. He said, I'm telling you, this is about the end. There's more to it. It's not just about right now. It's about the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. Now, he didn't just all of a sudden fall asleep. He passed out. All right, this is something significant. I mean, this is, a, this is, this is something he was so, so fearful, so uh, uh, affected by the image that he saw, and he had to be woken up. The angel, Gabriel, listen, it says, he touched me and set me upright. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Now, the indignation there is God's, I mean, the easiest way to put it is God's anger against his people. God's anger against his people. His judgment, his dealings with the sins of Israel. He says in verse number 19, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be the last end. Now remember, who is the focus? Who is the focus from this point on? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, okay? So just keep that in mind as we're talking about this stuff. And the appointed, or excuse me, for at the time appointed, the end shall be. What does that mean? It's all planned. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows exactly when it's going to end. He knows how everything is going to fall into place. Don't worry about it. God's in charge. Amen? Look what he says. He said, the ram which thou sawest, now we're going to go into point number two. Point number two, the explanation. Now, how many of y'all, how many of y'all are all together now? We see the experience. Daniel has, has seen a vision. He sees a dream. Uh, he is now being helped uh, by the angel Gabriel to understand what he has seen. Is everybody on that? Say amen. All right. Now let's talk about the explanation. Let's see the explanation that he has given. <clears throat> verse number 19, or excuse me, verse 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. Now we know, we know, well, some of us know that you've been here for most of the 
uh, study, we know that's Darius and Cyrus. All right. Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Right. So write that down. Explanation. We see the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire. Now watch this. This is one of the things I, we're going to talk about. It's a little different than what we've been covering. So, oh, I already knew that. You know, this is the third vision we've had. We know who these people are. What did we say? It's about, it's about repetition and what? Enlargement. We're going to get in a little bit more detail here. Okay. Now watch this. Centuries before Cyrus appeared on the scene. The prophet Isaiah called him by name and even called him God's shepherd in Isaiah 41, 2 and 25, 44, 28 through 45 and 4. It was Cyrus whom God chose to defeat the Babylonians and permit the Jews to return to their land. In other words, it was Cyrus that gave them the ability to go back home. Now we know, we know the nation of Israel was in bondage because of their rebellion And their bondage would last 70 years because of their rebellion. But God promised them they're going to get to go. And God orchestrated and ordained it for Cyrus to be the one to make this happen. Cyrus and his armies did indeed push westward and northward and southward. Now, can I have that? Can I have that map? I forgot my little pointer. Man, I got a souped up pointer out there to man. All right, if we look over here, this is where they start. If they're going that way, which way are they going? West and, and, that's them. All right, this is who he's talking about. The Medes and the Persians. You see where they started and they come, they come west, they went north. And if you see the loop, they come south. All right, he's describing the pattern that they came in their conquering. All right, now look. It says in, uh, uh, okay, back here. I missed my place. All right, here we go. Here we go. They defeated their enemies, taking Libya, Egypt, and all of Asia Minor and moving as far as India. Cyrus was kind to those he took captive and permitted the Jews to return to their land to rebuild the temple and restore the nation. He also allowed them to take with them the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple. And our sovereign Lord can even use a pagan king to accomplish his purpose. Now watch this. Here's what we're going to see. With each one of these, with with the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and even the Romans, it's all designed by God. God had a plan for it all. This nothing is going to slip up on the Lord. I heard a man say it this way. Has it ever occurred to you that ain't nothing ever occurred to him? He is alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. He knows the end from the beginning. Say amen. Amen. Yes, sir. He's in charge. All right, let's look at the goat. Let's look at the goat. So the ram, the ram is who? Medo-Persian. Now let's go back. Let's go back to, uh, let's go back to verse number... Verse number three, so I can explain, you know, we, we say we'd go back. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold, there stood before the river, a ram, which had what? Two horns. We know that's Medo Persian, the Medes and the Persians. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher came up last. All right. We see the Persians, the Persians became the greater unit, but they came in after 
All right. They overtook the Medes. Remember, we talked about Darius the Mede first and then later on in Daniel, who came? Cyrus the Persian, right? So this is, that's what the description is here. The one horn is higher than the other. It's just God describing the Medes and the Persians. He saw the ram, verse four. We see they pushed westward, northward, and southward so that no beast might stand before them. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. He conquered. Now, Daniel said, as I was watching this, verse five, as I was considering, behold, a he-goat, a he-goat, all right, now let's skip from verse five and go back over to verse number 21. All right, now let's go back to the angel's explanation. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia or Greek. He's a Greek king. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now he's talking about Alexander the, Alexander the Great. Now let's go back. Let's go back. Look at verse five. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. In other words, he was moving so fast, his feet wasn't even touching the ground. He was basically what? Flying. And it's representing speed. And everything about, everything about the, the Greek empire, everything about Alexander the Great, the most notable uh, characteristic of his army and his victories is the speed in which he conquered. The speed in which he fought, the speed in how his armies could move across and do what they did. So what, this is a great, and keep in mind, this is, this is way before it ever happened. Way before it ever happened. Matter of fact, most atheists and many Bible critics will say there's no way, there's no way that Daniel could have done this because it's too accurate. Think about that a minute. All right. Now, as he saw this, he said that the, the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. That's Alexander the Great. He came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen. Now, who's the, who's the ram? Who's the ram? The what empire? Medo-Persian empire. Standing before the river ran unto him in the fury of his power. I, this, is, this is the deal. The fury of his power. And I saw him close under the ram and he was moved with collar against him. That means he was furious. He, it, this was so, so much animosity in this. And I, I started studying, looking back. Why, why do they have such an attitude? Well, you got to understand a former Persian king, Xerxes, went in and burnt Athens to the ground and they never forgot it. They never, a matter of fact, I'm going to just read you a little bit. I got it because I got time. Let me show you this. Watch this. The second Persian invasion of Greece occurred during the Greco-Persian Wars as King Xerxes of Persia sought to conquer all of Greece. Some of this is going to fit. You, you don't, y'all, y'all don't saw a movie about this. The invasion was a direct, if, if not a delay to the defeat of the first Persian invasion of Greece. At the battle of Marathon, which ended Darius the first, which is Xerxes daddy, his attempts to subjugate Greece. After Darius's death, his son Xerxes spent several years planning for the second invasion, mustering an enormous army and navy. The Athenians and Spartans, 
led the Greek resistance. About a tenth of the Greek city-states joined the Allied effort and most remained neutral or submitted to Xerxes. The invasion began in spring of 480 BC when the Persian army crossed the Hellespont and marched through Thrace and Macedon and Thessaly. And the Persian advance was blocked at the pass of Thermopylae by a small allied force under King Leonidas of Sparta. Simultaneously, simultaneously, the Persian fleet was blocked by an allied fleet at the Straits of Artemisium. At the famous battle of Thermopylae, the allied army held back the Persian army for three days before they were outflanked by a mountain path and the allied rear guard was trapped and annihilated. The allied fleet had also withstood two days of Persian attacks at the battle of Artemisium, but when news reached them of the disaster of Thermopylae, they withdrew to Salamis and they ended up going in and burning Athens to the ground. Now, some of y'all just thought that was a movie, didn't you? That really happened. Well, the Greek people never forgot that. Specifically, Alexander the Great. So when Alexander the Great came conquering, he had it in for the Medes and the Persians. So if y'all with me, say amen. amen. Now you know why. Now you know why God said that this, this goat attacked the ram like it did, or Alexander the Great attacked the Medes and the Persians like he did. It was all about revenge, all about revenge. All right. Now let's continue. Daniel, look at your notes. We see the Ram is the Medo-Persian empire. The goat is the Greek empire. Daniel sees Greece as an angry goat who runs so swiftly his feet don't even touch the ground. But watch what happened. Watch what happened. You say, is this just, this is just a historical fact. No, it was a plan by God. Watch. They, the Greeks, accomplished God's purposes in the world and helped to prepare the world for the coming of who? Christ and the spread of the gospel. How'd they do that? By extending Greek culture and language, he helped to bring peoples together and eventually the common Koine Greek language became the language of the New Testament. Even through his empire, even though his empire divided four ways after his death, Alexander brought nations together so they could interact with each other. He literally wed the East and the West together when 9,000 of his soldiers and officers, some historians say even 10,000, married Eastern women in one mass wedding. What Alexander and the Greeks began, the Romans completed, helping to prepare the ancient world for the coming of Christ. Roman roads and bridges enabled people to travel and share their ideas, specifically the gospel. Roman law kept nations under control. Roman legions enforced the law with an iron fist. The Roman peace, the Pax Romana, gave people the opportunity to experience more security than they had known before. All of this contributed to taking of the Christian message throughout the Roman Empire And sometimes, as in the case of Paul, Rome paid the bills for the missionaries to travel. Do y'all see this? We're thinking this is just a a history lesson. Okay, this one did this and this one did that. No, no, no. You got to understand. You got to look at behind the scenes. God is laying this all out to accomplish his divine purposes. It was planned for Cyrus to do what he did. And, and 
and have affinity toward the Jewish people and care about and love the Jewish people enough to let them go home. He didn't just let them go. He financed it. He gave them what they needed to build the walls back, to build the temple back. That's all God. He let the Greeks come in because he's going to need a language that would be simple, a language that would be specific, a language that would be worldwide. So here's the Greek empire. Then we're going to have to have a way to get it to everybody. So he brought the Romans along to build all the roads because nobody, nobody built like the Romans did. When we went to, when we went to Israel, one of the first things we saw were the aqueducts. Remember the aqueducts? Guess who built them? That's right. And they're still there. They're still there. It's amazing. It's amazing. Romans built roads that are still travel. You can still travel on right now, a thousand years later, and we got potholes everywhere. Are y'all with me? Anyway, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <clears throat> they are. Look here. All of it is God's. When I saw this, when I saw this, just writing this out, man, it just, it just made the will of God and God's sovereignty and his plan so obvious. Nothing happens by accident. God is in control. All right. There's something else we got to see. The great horn. The great horn. All right. Verse 21, verse 21, the rough goat is the king of Grecia and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. All right. And, and when you see the king of Grecia, it means kingdom. Okay. It's talking about the empire, the whole, the, 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 the goat itself represents the empire and the horn is the king Alexander. Look what it says in, in verse seven. He came against the ram and broke his two horns. In other words, he defeated the two kings there. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So, so the Medes and Persians have, have gone by the way. Now the Greek empire underneath Alexander the Great is in charge and in control. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. The empire was great. And when he was strong... When he was strong at the height of his career, Alexander the Great, the great horn was broken. He died. You see, the large protruding horn represents Alexander the Great, who led the armies of Greece from victory to victory and extended his empire even beyond what Cyrus had done with the Persian army. But the horn was broken. Alexander died in Babylon in June 323 at the age of 33 years old. So what happens? What happens? It says in verse 22, this is the explanation. Remember, we're back to the angel. The angel's explaining. Now that being broken, what? That notable horn, Alexander the Great dying. Wherefore, what's that word? For stood up for it. Four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. In other words, there's going to be, we know these are his four generals. We've talked about this, but they're not going to have the ability that he had. They're not going to have the prowess. They're not going to have the intelligence. They're not going to have the, the skills and the wisdom, his ability to, to fight. 
they're just gonna, they're gonna take over from what he had. Now, go back up to verse eight. Therefore, he, the he go waxed very great. And when he was strong, that the height of his career, I mean, he was a young man. The great horn was broken. He died. Alexander the Great died. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Let's look at our notes. The notable horns are the four generals. All right. The notable horns are the four generals. Alexander returned to Babylon in 323 BCE with plans for expanding his empire, but he would never realize them. He died at Babylon at the age of 32, going on 33, on 10 11 June 323, after suffering 10 days of high fever. Theories concerning his cause of death have ranged from poisoning to malaria to meningitis to bacterial infection from possibly even drinking contaminated water. Plutarch says that 14 days before his death, Alexander entertained his fleet admiral, Nericus, and his friend Medius of Larissa with a long bout of drinking, after which he fell into a fever from which he never recovered. When he was asked who should succeed him, Alexander said the strongest, which answer led to his empire being divided between his four generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Antagonist and Seleucus. So we, we see an empire has been split and there's basically four generals who are taking over four different districts, four different divisions of his main empire. But something happens that's going to be new. Okay. This is a newbie. This hasn't been talked about. This hasn't been talked about in the last visions that we've seen. A new person comes to the scene. All right. And out, this new person comes from one of the general's districts, which would be Seleucus. Okay. Now watch what it says. Watch what it says. Verse nine. And out of one of them, we know it's Seleucus. Out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the that's the, the, the holy land, the promised land is Israel. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. That's talking about God's people, the Israel, Israelite people. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away. In other words, uh, the, the, the Jewish people who would go in daily and offer a sacrifice in the temple. This was their tradition. This was what they did every single day. It was stopped. It was stopped. It was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down or it was defiled. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground and it practiced and prospered. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, we're going to look at the little horn. The little horn is a representation of two people who are the same. Two people who are the same. One represents the other, or the one is a type or a picture of the other. How many of y'all know God likes to show you a picture of in the old Testament of what's the real thing in the new Testament. 
In other words, you see, Joseph is one of the greatest types of Christ in the Bible. He was beloved of his father. He was hated by his brethren. He was sold for silver. He ended up taking a Gentile bride. Ooh, say amen. That's a type of the church, by the way, if you don't catch that typology. He ended up going from a pit to a palace. Are y'all with me? Why did God do that? Because he's drawing a picture of his son. And he was giving you an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament reality. Well, this man that we're going to talk about tonight is the Old Testament type. He is a real man and, it, 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 and it has, he has already been on the scene. This is, this is, you, can go, you can go and look him up in any secular, uh, just Google his name and you can get all the information. This is a real person, all right? But he's an Old Testament type of a New Testament reality. His name is, it's two different names. You can call, I, 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 I was researching and it's pronounced two different ways. Some, some pronounce it Antiochus and some pronounce it Antiochus, Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes. He came out of the, re, the, the realm, the solution region, Antiochus Epiphanes. I've always heard it called Antiochus Epiphanes, but I, I, I was watching several documentaries on him today and they were using Antiochus. So I don't care what you call him. That's how you, that's it. You spell it and you can call him anything you want to. But he was a ruler who came from the Seleucid, the Seleucid realm. And he is a type of who? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. Now let's look at the similarities. This is amazing. All right. Watch this. There's two, there's two fulfillments. There's a near fulfillment. A near fulfillment. Say that with me. Number one, a near fulfillment. In other words, it's fixing to happen in the very near future to Daniel, not to us, but to Daniel. This is a near fulfillment. That is Antiochus Epiphanes. That happened. But he is a type of a far fulfillment that's way down the line. All right. Antiochus is a near fulfillment. The Antichrist is a far fulfillment. When we read, now this is important. This is important. Stay with me. Don't go get your popcorn. Here we go. Verses nine through 14 describe Antiochus. But verses 23 through 25, he's describing things change. There's a shift. The angel says, verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, the latter time means the end. Okay, so there's a shift there. He's speaking about the Antichrist. All right. Is everybody with me? Say amen. amen. Now let's, do, let's talk about Antiochus a minute. I got a lot of information on him. He is a scoundrel. <clears throat> As we've already seen after the death of Alexander the Great, which was the notable horn, his empire was divided into four parts with four of his officers taking control. Out of one of those out of one of those generals, his areas, a little horn appears who became a great leader. This is Antiochus Epiphanes, the ruler of Syria from 175 to 163 BC and known as one of the cruelest tyrants in history. Antiochus gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means illustrious manifestation or 
a God. He would introduce himself as God Antiochus. He wanted you to look at him as a God. He thought of himself as a God. He claimed to be the revelation or epiphany of the gods. He even had the word Theos put on the coins minted with his features on it. And his features on the coins came to look more and more like the Greek God Zeus. Let me, let me give you a little detail about him. And I'm not going to give you too much because we're going to talk about him again in chapter number 11 and go into real detail. This really cool stuff. He had a passionate desire to turn the Jews into good Greeks. He wanted them all to, to, to accept and adapt to the Greek culture, the Greek language, uh, the Greek religion, the, the many gods. Are y'all with me? You can imagine how that went over to the Jewish people. And one of the first acts was to drive out the high priest, Onias, an ardent Jew, and replace him with Jason, a patron of the Greeks. In other words, uh, a person who was really into the Greek culture, the Hellenistic Greek culture, and he was trying to bend the people to be more Greek. But then he was replaced by Menelaus because uh, uh, Antiochus didn't think he was trying to change the people fast enough. In other words, he wasn't getting them to conform to the Greek culture fast enough. So he took him out and put another man in, Menelaus, who actually purchased the priesthood. He, he purchased this, this spot or this office. Believing a rumor that the king was dead because Antiochus went to Egypt. Okay, he went to Egypt. He took a big army to Egypt and was going to fight in Egypt. And I don't want to get into too much of that because we're going to get into that in chapter number 11. But he got embarrassed in Egypt and, and run out. And like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that in chapter 11. But he's humiliated in Egypt and he's already mad and he hears about an insurrection. Because Jason, who he took out, he heard that, that Antiochus had died. It was a rumor. Well, so he went in and, and rebelled and kicked out Menelaus and took back over. Well, guess what? Antiochus wasn't dead. And now he comes back. He comes back from Egypt. He was embarrassed and humiliated in Egypt. He's already mad and he's heard of an insurrection in Jerusalem in Israel. Are y'all with me? Say amen. Now, believing the rumor that the king was dead, Jason attacked Jerusalem only to learn that Antiochus was very much alive. The angry king attacked Jerusalem, plundered the temple, and in 168, he sent an army of 20,000 men under Apollonius to level Jerusalem. They entered the city on the Sabbath, murdered most of the men, and took the women and children as slaves. The remaining men fled to the army of the Jewish leader, Judas Maccabeus. Now, let me, let me, let me read some of the writings from the Maccabees that describe this event. When these happenings were reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt. Raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those who they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, 80,000 were lost. 40,000 meeting a violent death and the same number being sold into slavery. 
vicious, no mercy, killing men, women, children, no mercy. That wasn't enough, though. That wasn't enough. King wasn't satisfied. So he issued an edict that there would be one religion in his realm and it wouldn't be Judaism. He prohibited the Jews from honoring the Sabbath. He prohibited them from practicing circumcision and obeying the Levitical dietary laws. Didn't we hear something about the Antichrist being one to change laws in times? Remember? He climaxed his campaign on December the 14th, 168. Watch this. By replacing the Jewish altar with an altar to Zeus. This is in the temple. All right. In the temple. And sacrificing a pig on it. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know how unclean a pig is to a Jewish person. So in the temple, in God's temple, in Jerusalem, on God's holy mountain, he put a false God in the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar. And some historians said that he made, he made many of the Jews eat the pig. And took the blood of the pig and poured it all over, just desecrated the whole temple. Any Jew found possessing a copy of the law of Moses was slain. But Jerusalem was eventually delivered by the courageous exploits of Judas Maccabeus and his followers. On on December 14th, 165, the temple was purified, the altar of burnt offering restored, the Jewish worship once again restored... It is this event that the Jewish people celebrate as the Feast of Lights or Hanukkah. Antiochus went mad while in Persia where he died in 163. So if you ever wanted to know what Hanukkah was all about, that's what it's about. Now, why are we we talking about how evil this man was and how wicked and what, what he did? Because God drew a picture of what's to come. When a movie's coming out, what are they? Is it a trailer? Is that what they call that? What is it? Okay, the preview or the trailer. Antiochus Epiphanes is a preview of the Antichrist that's to come. Are y'all with me? Say amen. Now, well, let's look at some of the similarities. Let's look at some of the similarities. Let's look at the far fulfillment. <clears throat> The angel awakened Daniel from his deep sleep and told him there was yet more prophetic truth for him to hear. And it related to the time of wrath. That's verse 19. And the time of the end. You see the shift? All right. First, he explains to him about Antiochus and this notable horn that was going to come out of the Seleucid Empire, which came out of the four generals, which came out of Alexander the Great. Right. This was something that was going to happen in the very near future. And it did. Okay, but now he's shifting. Now the the language is changing. He's talking about a time of wrath. He's talking about the time of the end, which begins in verse 23. All right, which is the time of tribulation. The Old Testament prophets call this period the time of Jacob's trouble. Do y'all see this? This is for the nation of Israel. It is not for the church. It is God getting the attention of his people. It's the time of Jacob's trouble 
and the day of the, oh, we studied that last week. The period when God's wrath would be poured out on an evil world. In other words, what Daniel learns in Daniel 8, 23 through 27 relates to the end times when Antichrist will oppose God and God's people. The king of fierce countenance. Let's read in verse 23. And in the latter time or the end time. So we see a shift here. We see a shift in the latter times of the kingdoms when the transgressors are come to the full. Now that's a very important statement. That's a very important statement. They're pretty, what do you mean that's an important statement? Put it to you this way. This is the best way to understand this. Let's say there's a bucket. And when that bucket gets full, it's over. This, this was explained, this was explained with the nations that were in the promised land. That God gave them 400 years, the times that, that, that God's people was in Egypt in slavery for them to repent. And when their transgressions were full, in other words, God said, I've had it up to y'all with me. Then he moved. You ever wonder why we ain't checked out of here yet? It ain't full. God has got a level. God has got a level. And I'm glad he's got a level of patience too. Thank God. And a level of grace. But there's a level of sin too. And the Bible says when that time comes, when the transgressors are come to the full. A king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. We know who, who empowers him, Satan, and he shall destroy wonderfully. And that, that means in a huge way and shall prosper in practice. He's going to seem invincible and he shall destroy the mighty and the, who are the holy people. The Israel and through his policy. And by the way, it's people that will be believers during the tribulation period too. Through his policy. Also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. That's a, that's a, sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? He's going to come as a peacemaker. He's going to come as a shrewd politician but he's going to bring destruction in his way. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Who's the prince of princes? That's Christ. He, Christ is called the prince of princes, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God of gods. Say amen. amen. But he shall be broken without hand. That means without human intervention. Jesus is going to speak and we'll get to that when we get to Revelation 19. Let me give you a couple more things real quick. This is not in your notes, but let me, let me, let me give you a couple things. Yeah, I got some more stuff in your notes. Let's look at the comparison. <clears throat> Let's look at the comparison. 
The king of fierce countenance is the Antichrist, not Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was a type. He was a picture of what's to come. If that makes sense, say amen. But if you compare the verses 23 through 27 with 9 through 14, you will see that the characteristics and career of Antiochus parallel those of the Antichrist. Both begin modestly, but increase in power and influence. Both blaspheme God with mouths that speak great things. Both persecute the Jewish people. Both claim to be gods and put images in the temple. How significant is that? Both impose their own religion on the people. Both are opposed by a believing remnant that knows God. Both are energized by the devil and are great deceivers. Both appear to succeed marvelously and seem to be invincible. But both are finally defeated by the coming of a redeemer, Judas Maccabeus for one, and Jesus Christ in the, in the near future for us. Amen? Listen, God is describing what's going to happen. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. Look at me real quick. Look at me real quick. Two minutes. <clears throat> Knowing these facts about Antiochus helps us better understand the text of Daniel's prophecy. Antiochus started in a small way, but gradually accumulated power as he magnified himself and dealt ruthlessly with the Jewish people. He attacked the Jews in their pleasant land and put a stop to their religious practices. He even claimed that he was a God. In verse 10, the Jews are described as the host of heaven and the stars. When Antiochus stopped the daily sacrifices in the temple and substituted pagan worship, watch now, here's his important key. This was called the abomination that makes desolate. The transgression of desolation, verse 8, verse 13. This concept is found also in chapter 9, verse 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. And is used by Jesus. Jesus, you remember as we were going through Matthew 24, we talked about the, the abomination of desolation. And it's also spoken about in Mark 13, 14. What Antiochus did was a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist will do when he puts his image in the temple and commands the world to worship him. Daniel 8, 13 and eleven thirty one refer to Antiochus and the other references to Antichrist of whom Antiochus is a picture or a type. Are y'all with me? Say amen. amen. What did Antiochus do? He went into the temple and he offered a pig on a sacri- on the altar. He set up an image, an image and said, you can no longer worship your God, worship me. I am a God. He even called himself a God. Put it in his name. Well, guess what the Antichrist is going to do? He's going to come in as a hero. He's going to come in peacefully as a politician and offer the nation of Israel hope. He's going to give them, I mean, you look at the chaos that's going on in this world. I mean, who who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want peace? So they're going to sign a seven-year peace treaty, which we're going to get into in a couple chapters. But in the three and a half years, he's going to break it. And he's going to go into, he's going to go into the temple he is going to declare himself God, which will be, Jesus said, this will be what Antiochus did, the abomination that makes desolate. It will be the abomination of desolation. He will stop. He will stop the sacrifices because once they rebuild the temple, they're going to start sacrificing again. They're going to reinstitute their traditional 
historical worship. And, and this is going to be allowed by the Antichrist as part of the peace treaty. And they're going to think, this is great. We finally get to do what we've always wanted to do. Well, he's going to make them stop that and say, now worship me. He's going to be full of the devil. He's going to be, uh, uh, what do you call that? Possessed. That's the word, possessed. He's going to be possessed by Satan and empowered by Satan, but have no fear. When it's all said and done, we win. We win. All right. That's the lesson for tonight. I hope you're glad you came. I know it was a lot of history, but you had to hear that stuff. It's, it's, it, when you tie in biblical history and secular history and it all fits, that's the coolest thing in the world. All right. Let's all stand. Let's all stand. We're going to dismiss.